Section 8 of Flower Patch Among the Hills. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ed Damereau. Flower Patch Among the Hills by Flora Clickman. Just being neighborly. Those superior Londoners who know nothing at first hand about nature, unimproved. The type who find complete satisfaction for soul, body, and mind at some loud and crowded seaside resort, sometimes say to me, I can't think how you can endure the terrible isolation of the country with absolutely nothing to look at. No one to say a word. Nobody to take the slightest interest in you, dead or alive. Well, I should go out of my mind in such solitariness, but then I am so human. I do like a little life, etc. I don't attempt to convert such people. After all, they are just as much entitled to their views as I am to mine. Besides, I am only too thankful that they keep away from our hills and disport themselves in an environment more in keeping with their personal tastes. We don't want the blatant woman, or the overdressed, which nowadays means underdressed woman, or the artificial woman, or the woman who likes a little life. Our hills would never suit them as a background, either mentally or otherwise. Why, we have neither a music hall nor a picture palace for I don't know how many miles around. A benighted spot it isn't. But when they reproach us with having no one to say a word and no one to take the slightest interest in our doings, well, I could say many things, but I merely assure them that we are nothing if not neighborly. I took my sewing and went down to the bottom of the lower orchard. It was a warm day, but not too hot to sit out of doors at eleven in the morning, provided one found a shelter from the sun overhead. As I have explained before, my cottage is on a steep hillside. The whole earth runs either up or down. In only a few favored spots can you place a chair and sit on it with any degree of certainty. And even then you probably have to level up the back or the front by putting some flat stones under two of the legs. The slope of the hill faces south, hence we get all the sun there is. The bottom of the lower orchard was just the place for such a day. A wall with overhanging tangles of honeysuckle and ivy, and an oak tree that spread big arms well over the wall, gave just the shade one needed from the blazing sun. I put the wicker chair with its back to the wall, and such a comfort a wall is anywhere out of doors, when you want to sit down. The view from this spot is very restful on a summer's day. The hot south is behind. One faces the cooler, glareless northern sky above the hill that rises before one. This orchard is but sparsely populated with fruit trees. And most of these are very old. There are some huge pear trees that rise tall and fairly straight, suggestive of rather well-fed poplars. There are some twisted, rugged apple trees, every branch and twig presenting a wonderful study in silver and gray and green filigree, where the lichens have spread and reveled unmolested for many a year. The lichens are so marvelously beautiful 
It always takes me quite a time to get down to the lower wall. There is so much to look at on the way. The delicate fronds that seem closely related in their appearance to the hoarfrost designs on the winter windows show such a variety of different cluster schemes. They decorate the odd corners and throw beauty over the hard knots and gnarls, till I sometimes think they are among the most exquisite things nature has ever produced. Only while I am thinking this, I come upon something else equally beautiful. Even on a hot day, when most of the mosses and lichens have faded in the glare and drought, we still find the silvery-gray tracery flourishing on the shady side of the apple trees and on the pieces of branches that were snapped off and blown down into the long grass by the equinoctial gales. I usually gather up an armful of these branches with their delicate pencil studies on a darker background and carry them down to the bottom of the orchard with me, only to wonder why I didn't leave them where they were till I returned, as I have to carry them back up the hill again presently. It may seem weakly sentimental to those who do not understand, but I confess that, much as I love the smell of burning apple wood, it always gives me a real pain to put on the fire twigs that are ornamented with moss or lichen. It seems heartless to destroy such beauty, even though there is plenty more where that came from, as people sometimes tell me. In the summer, I put the pieces of the gray-green branches that I gather up about the orchard in the empty hearths and grates. Many of the old trees originally planted in the lower orchard have died or been blown down. The wind takes a heavy toll from these heights. We can't have pergolas and rose arches up here, as they can lower down in the valley, unless we fasten them to very firm foundations. As no previous owner in this happy-go-lucky district thought it worth whiles to put up new stock in the place of the fruit trees that have come down, there are plenty of open spaces, and comparatively little to obstruct the view as you sit against the bottom wall and look up the hillside. I am afraid this orchard is more ornamental than useful, for the pears are the hard bitter sort used for making perry, a drink that is very popular locally and the apples are the equally uninteresting to the taste cider variety. Yet they are so exceptionally beautiful, as the fruit turns crimson and yellow and golden brown, that the trees become a glory of color in fruit-gathering time. After all, there is excuse for ornament without specific use, if a thing be very, very ornamental. And the orchard certainly is that. The sun reaches well under the trees where the wildflowers and grasses make a softly waving sea of color. Of course, I know the grass ought to be kept cut so as to prevent undue nourishment being taken from the earth for the support of mere weeds. But we pretend that it is properly cropped by Hussey. She is the mild-eyed, dusky Jersey belonging to the farmeress who supplies our milk and is so called because she has a playful habit of kicking over the pail. Occasionally, she is turned in and roams about at meditative leisure, to the indignation of the small dog, who regards her as a hated rival. But once the fruit appears, she has to be removed. Either she chokes herself with pears, or else they don't agree with the butter, or various other things. Even a cow seems a complicated problem when you own a real one. 
and though I have only had cow anxieties second-hand, so to speak, my acquaintance with hussy has led me to wonder whether, on the whole, a tin of milk is a more sure and certain investment for sixpence halfpenny. But even when the orchard has a tenant, it is surprising how little damage she seems to do to the wildflowers. This is all the more remarkable if you have ever seen what devastation one simple-minded cow is capable of, if it indulges in but a ten minutes revel in your flower garden. Hussy seems to eat carefully round the flowers, leaving the whole plant intact, which is more than a mowing machine will do, despite its much-vaunted updatedness. Civilization has still a lot to learn. Every season has its special flower show in this orchard. I only wish I could get the same never-failing succession of flowers in my garden that nature does in hers. On this particular July day, the large field scabious was perhaps the most noticeable flower, its mauve-blue blossoms high above all the rest, its long stalks always determining to outtop everything else that grows in the delightful medley. "'Please, ma'am, I've brought you some flowers,' said a little pinafored girl to me one day, when I had just arrived. "'She is an especial favorite of mine and lives in a cottage along my lane. "'This is her way of just being neighborly.' "'In her hand was a large bunch of scabious and grasses. "'These are very pretty,' I said. "'What do you call them?' "'Please, ma'am, I call them Queen Mary's pincushions,' she said shyly. The country names for the flowers are often so much more interesting than the ones you find attached to them in books. After all, Queen Mary's pincushion has something real and understandable about it for just ordinary people like myself, whereas Scabiosa arvensis, its proper name, doesn't stir my heart the least little bit. It was easy to see the process by which the child had got the name, the flowers are wonderfully like plump, round pincushions, with the stamens for the pins. But anything so delicately beautiful would not be suitable for aunt save a royal lady's dressing table. Hence, Queen Mary was, of course, the one to whom they were dedicated. And isn't the name Lady's Laces most suggestive? That is what we call the white, filmy flowers of the hedge parsley. I seldom see a fine white lace evening gown without thinking of the soft mist of white over green that surprises us in June and smothers the orchard when the ladies' laces suddenly burst into billows of bloom. Some of the local names are more material and prosaic than idealistic, however. There is another flower that grows all about the orchard in close company with the scabious. It has bunches of bright yellow flowers of the daisy family growing in compact heads at the top of a tall stem. I am very fond of this flower. It gleams sunshine all over the place. But I don't dare call it Chenaceo Jacobia, which is its proper name. It's so mortifying when people look at you puzzled and inquiring and then ask, with a patient sigh, if you would mind spelling it. I never could spell. Neither do I care for its other slightly less official name, Common Ragwort. So one day, when an old man was passing, who was fairly well up in flowers, 
I asked him if he could tell me the name of this sunshine plant, to which he replied, Well, let's call some mards, Mem. I didn't ask him to spell it, because I don't fancy he can spell any better than I can. I merely said, I don't think I quite caught the name. I said, Ards, Mum. Ards. We always call them that because they're so hard to pull up. I thanked him, and still in secret, called them the sunshine flowers. Though I admit that Virginia, having recently set out gaily to rectify my shocking laxity in the matter of the proper cultivation of an orchard, at last decided herself to call them ards. She found that the act of sitting down violently and unexpectedly so many times in the course of trying to pull up a few innocent-looking plants wore her out more than it did the ards. So she gave it up at length, and there they remain until this day. Intermingling with Queen Mary's pincushions and the sunshine flowers is a rosy purple flower that blends delightfully with the other two. Napweed is one of its names. It looks something like a thistle bloom at a distance, but it is really a relation of the sweet sultan that grows in the garden beds, I believe. Then there are harebells dancing in the wind on the top of little grassy mounds, so frail they look, yet Hussy never seems to walk on them. Ragged robins flutter pink petals besides a little brook that runs down at the side of the orchard, and here are also big blue forget-me-nots with bright yellow centers. But there is one thing about this orchard that very few people have discovered, and that is the host of sweet-smelling things that you walk on or rub against as you carry the wicker chair down to the bottom wall. Do you know what it is like to walk on pennyroyal and sweet basil? Have you ever stood still suddenly and said, what is it? As a delicious aromatic scent added itself to all the other lovely scents floating around. I discovered a whole world of beautiful scents in among the orchard grass. The penny royal was the most unsuspicious looking till I stepped on it. I didn't mean to step on it, but then one must walk somewhere. Next, I found out the sweet basil with its unobtrusive pink flowers. Still, I hadn't found it all. A little later, I came upon some wild mint beside the brook. The tansy I had long been friendly with, the scent of it seems to fit in so exactly with a hot summer day. And the wild thyme that grows on a sunny bank at one side of the orchard, you couldn't possibly miss. The bees have so much to say about it. Bushes of balm that have possibly strayed away from the garden are always at hand to rub a leaf when desired. But I think, of all my favorites, the black peppermint has first place. I shall never forget the day I first discovered its dark shoots pushing up undaunted among the grass. Not but what I had a long-standing friendship with peppermint in my first childhood, as bullseyes, in my second childhood, as peppermint creams. But I hadn't the slightest notion what it was like in its natural state. When once I found it, I soon realized that it stood alone among all the scented wonders. I put some of it at various corners about the garden because I found it has remarkable healing powers. No matter how dispirited you may be or out of joint with the world, it is only necessary to take a leaf, rub it, and sniff it, whereupon the world smiles again, 
and you realize that, in spite of it all, it is good to be alive. You will understand, therefore, how essential it is to have it in handy places, so that weary people, even if they do not know of its unique qualities, may rub against it in passing and unconsciously come under its spell. It dies down in the winter, but when spring comes, we always look eagerly for the first purple-black shoots pushing up cheerily from the soil. It has only one fault. It suffers from zeal without discretion. It will not keep within proper bounds. At the present moment, I am wondering whether it is better to dig up the bergamot or rout out the peppermint. They are having a hand-to-hand -hand fight for supremacy in one particular flower corner. I am afraid my needlework was a mere matter of form that morning. Who could glue their eyes to a piece of hem-stitching, with the whole earth fairly dancing with color and light around them? I faintly, but not very earnestly, wished that I had brought knitting instead of sewing, because that doesn't need to be looked at, and you can keep up a semblance of respectable industry while you are watching all the wild things. I had been feeling rather aggravated with a woman who had written commiserating with my odd predilection for being buried in a spot where there was positively nothing to be seen. She was really pitying me. Well, I pitied her back and pitied her hard. Had she only known it, she would have been aggravated too. So at least we were quits. She had said that, for her part, she should simply die in such an unsociable place. I took care to be just as sorry for her as she was for me. It was a slight satisfaction to me. It was at this moment that I heard voices of two women talking in the lane hidden from view behind the orchard wall. "'How's yourself, Mrs. Blake?' "'Only middling.' "'We always start our conversations with lugubriousness.' It seems indecorous to pervade health and happiness before our neighbors. I'm in a tearing hurry. I've just been to the doctor's to see if he can't give me something for my poor Jim's tooth. It do pester him something cruel. I promised him I'd run all the way there and back. He'll be raving till I get back. Ah, uh, he won't get no peace till he has it out, I reckon. The doctor says, why don't he have him out and get some new ones? but I call it waste. Look at my sister's husband. Cost him a guinea, he's did. Of course, he got a complete set, top and bottom, for that. Fifty-three teeth altogether, I believe, he told me. And as natural as you please, I'll own. But seeing as, of course, he's got to take him out to eat, I call it spending just for show, even if they do give you a good mouthful for your money. By the way, speaking of teeth reminds me, only I can't stop to tell you all about it now, as the children'll be in from school at half-past twelve, and I haven't started the dinner yet, but I've just heard that poor Mrs. Jeggins over to Brown Brooks, gone. Poor thing, is she, though? Yes, your mentioning Jim's tooth made me think of it. They fancy it started with a tooth in her case, too, for she had face-ache terrible bad about six months ago, her husband told me and then it just went all over her like. The doctor simply couldn't do nothing with it. He tried every mortal bottle he had in his surgery, and gave her some out of every single one. And yet, she died. 
but there I s'pose it had to be. I hear tell from sister-in-law as she drank something awful. But mind you, if it's a lie, teat my lie. It's her lie as told me. And I don't mind at all hold with repeating a thing like that, but in any case, I shouldn't think it was her tooth. I expect she ate something that didn't agree with her. Well, maybe, as I always say, you can't be too careful what you eat nowadays. The dinner they've got up there smells tasty, don't it? Yes, it's roast duck. Duck, is it? I didn't know they had a duck this week. Who did they get it from? Sarah Ann Perkins, that old brown one of hers. The brown one? How much did she ask for it? <laughs> four and six. Yes, four and six, if you believe me. Fancy her having the face to ask it for that brown duck. But there, those that can afford to pay may just as well do so for those that can't. Just as well. But four and six? And she won't finish it up, neither. Doesn't care for cold poultry, I'm told. She'll have a fair slice from the breast, but that's all. Never allows it to be seen in the dining room a second time. And there's only the two of them there now. Still, that Abigail's a hearty eater. My husband was up there a-fixin' a tile that had got loosish on the roof. And he told me what she ate that day. A gammon rasher and an egg and four slices of bread and butter and a piece of fried bread out of the frying pan and two cups of coffee, half milk, and some jam for breakfast. He was just a-going up the ladder past the kitchen window at the time and when he come down, finding as he needed a bit of cement, she was having lunch of bread and cheese and a cup of tea out of her lady's teapot. She always has a cup of tea between eleven and twelve, and he'd smoked his pipe right out afore she'd finished. And when he come down again at dinner time, she was having a dinner fit for a grown man just come home from the cattle market. Made him hungry to see her, it did. He hung about a bit, looking for his jackknife as he wanted something to measure with. And at tea time, he went in for a drop of water to mix the cement, and she was having potted meat and toast butter too. Not dripping toast, if you ever did. But of course, she relishes the good victuals she gets in a country place like ourn. So different to the stuff you get in the town. You're right there, but they do have a sight of things down from London. There was a box with army and navy stores right on it that was so heavy it was all old bob could do to get it on his shoulder with our tom to give him a hand old bob said he'd been reading in the papers what awful waste there is in some of the army camps and how the food gets thrown away or sold by the cartload to get rid of it but he didn't know it was going on in the navy too wicked i call it they thought it must be tin things it were such a weight but they couldn't make out for sure, though they rattled it ever so hard to see. It was packed up awful tight. Taters weigh heavy, but it wouldn't be they. She's got plenty. What with new ones coming on soon, and a large box left still of the old ones. I saw them in the scullery last time I was there. I'm going to ask if I can have them. I'm so short for the pig. It might have been soap and soda and hearthstone, though. They all weighs heavy. That's true. Still, I know for certain she has a heap of queer things sent down. Because when I was in Jane Price's the other day, she had a pot of something called toonie fish, whatever that may be, on the dresser. 
I asked her what it was. She told me she was passing here one day and thought she heard someone calling her name. So she stepped inside and looked around. No one was there, but she chanced to pass the back door, and there on top of the dustbin she saw this pot. She brought it away with her just to ask our Tom if he knew what it was, but he says they don't catch it about here. Never heard tell on it. Still, those sort of things aren't like a nice piece of fat bacon to my taste, to say nothing of duck, though I like a bit more pickin' on mine than they'll be on that brown one, I reckon. You know, I expect they're cookin' it now to have it cold for the company's supper tonight, because in any case they don't need it today. They had two chops and a shoulder of lamb and some gravy beef on Saturday. I met the boy taking it up and asked him what he had. They'd have the chops that day, and the lamb roast on Sunday, and cold Monday, and it's only Tuesday now, and they can't have finished it up. It was a fair-sized one, and there's the gravy beef soup. You may depend on it's for the visitors. Oh, I didn't know she was expecting company. It won't be Miss Virginia and her sister, because they're abroad. She asked my husband to call for her afternoon letters, as he was passing the post office yesterday, and he brought them up and there was a postcard with a picture on it of some foreign place, and it said, This is our hotel, enjoying ourselves immensely. Expect to be here for a fortnight. And there was something written at the bottom that I couldn't make out, but it might have been a V or a U, only it was smudged so's you couldn't see what it was. So it was sure to be from them. No, it wasn't they two, twasn't their trunks. More than one trunk is there. Then they're going to stay a little while. My buff Orpingtons have started to lay again, that's lucky. How many do you say were coming? I don't know for certain, but I fancy it must be three, because there were two blankets, one single bed and one double, hanging in the sun when I came past yesterday. And Abigail was polishing the downstairs winders, and she'd got clean curtains to the little room over the kitchen, as well as in the sitting room. Not that there was any need to put up clean curtains, that I can see. Those in the sitting room had only been up two months, and the upstairs ones were due last time she was down here. You could tell they were new, the Muslim hung so stiff. I take it a cutting isn't properly washed if it don't last six months at least. But she's very particular about curtains. Abigail told my Mabel that in London they don't never dream of keeping a cutting up more than a month and often the whole lot is changed in a fortnight. And just think, the winders is done every week. Send me crazy, it would. I don't think it's healthy to be as finicky clean as that. Why, you're always opening winders and letting in drafts, and this morning I see she's got the curtains down in the flower room. The flower room? Which be that? Oh, it's the name they've give the one on the right at the top of the stairs. It's got a new laylock paper on the wall, and she's got a new bedspread, white, with bunches of laylock all about it, and a bit of iliotrope sateen hangs down behind the head of the bed to keep the draft off, though it'd be far more sense to just shut the winder. I say, for that sateen's faded dreadful in the folds already. I was only noticing it the other day, when my cousin was up from Wolverhampton, and I took her over the house. Oh, yes. Mrs. Whittle will lend me the key any time. Mrs. Whittle was my caretaker. 
and it do make a bit of a change to take any one to. My cousin said at the time she'd never buy a bedspread like that, the colour's so fleeting. Besides, she wouldn't have a white ground in any case. It's always in the wash. She made herself a lovely spread, she was telling me, out of a pair of old long curtains, just cutting out the bad places and then dyeing it a deep coffee colour with a little cold tea. Makes it last like anything. I say the same. Them white spreads never pay for themselves, though I rather like the one she's got with the roses on. Hannah Craddock was a washin' of it one day when I dropped in. Hannah is the village laundress. That was the last time Miss Ursula was down, because Hannah was doing of her blouses that week, and my Mabel was very taken with one that had bits of crochet let in all about it, and points of it up the sleeves just here. And my Mabel tried to copy it, only Hannah had promised it home that very afternoon. So we're waiting for it to come again, as Mabel can't get the yoke quite right. I'm sorry it isn't them who's coming. She wants to get it finished afore she goes to London next month. Did you see the name on the trunks? Now you mention it, I saw the boy taking a telegraph up the house yesterday. No, the day before. It was my husband told me about it when he looked in home just now, and his sight being so poor he couldn't see the name. In spite of the educational authorities, many of the men in our village cannot read, but by courtesy it is always referred to as poor sight. So he asked the station-master if he should drop him anywhere, as he had got her ladyship's cart there. He is helping at the manor-house to-day. He'd just taken some hay to the station, and it seemed a real waste of good time to do nothing with it coming back. But the station-master said they was for up here, and old Bob was taking him up as the ladies wouldn't have the fly, and said they'd prefer to walk. And would you believe it, he never so much as thought to ask how many there were. Still, I'll soon find out and let you know. I'll go up and ask Abigail if she can oblige me with the loan of a little salt. I've a couple of ducks myself, as I'd be glad to get four and six apiece for if... At this moment, Abigail appeared at the cottage door, and the gong reverberated and echoed as she gave it a vigorous hammering calculated to wake me up wherever I might be. "'Good gracious! That's for her one o'clock dinner!' exclaimed the women in one breath, and fled in opposite directions, presumably to minister to the raving and the ravenous. As the conversation had implied, the duck was tough and inadequate. But it was a certain satisfaction to me, as I sought about in vain for a fairly good slice from the breast of the skinny carcass, to reflect that I hadn't paid for it as yet. I was out when the youthful Perkins had delivered it. For the rest, I didn't attach any value to the women's gossip. Once you have any real footing in a rural district, and have become part and parcel of the countryside, you soon learn that one impossibility is terrible isolation. From rosy morn till dewy eve, one or another woman is engaged in lengthy gossip with any other she meets, and in nearly every case the topic of exhaustive conversation will be the doings of somebody else. Moreover, the less that is actually known about the third and absent party, the more two and two will add up to nineteen. 
In the main, I have seldom found such gossips, either spiteful or slanderous, they consider it being neighborly to keep count of your sayings and doings. There were two items in the women's chatter that were enlightening, however. I had always suspected that Mrs. Price knew where certain items from my store cupboard had gone one winter's night, when the cottage was uninhabited and the kitchen window was forced. I doubt if there was another person in the place who would have done it. Still, I was glad to have the mystery cleared up. I was not surprised to hear that all and sundry had the run of my house when I wasn't there. The Englishwoman who occupies any house of more than six rooms, we will say, where she can keep clean her unaided self, knows that she never can call any room her own excepting the one she chances to be in at the moment, and not even that one if the British workman happens to be in the ascendant. It is one of the compensations of life that the smaller our habitation, the more we ourselves get out of it personally, a kind of intensive interest. Whereas the larger our domains, the more imposing our houses, the more numerous our rooms, the more they are monopolized by other people, paid assistance for the most part, to the exclusion of ourselves. In my very own humble way, I soon realized that even my country cottage and its contents were only my own, so long as I could sit on them, so to speak. I early discovered that my sheets and pillowcases, my towels and tablecloths, were not allowed to lead a life of idle, selfish exclusiveness in my absences. Mrs. Widow's enterprising married daughter quickly furnished a room at her own cottage over an outhouse which had hitherto been used as a lumber garret. This she could always let in the summer, when the big houses in the neighborhood were full up with visitors and extra rooms were needed. Of course, at times I proved exceedingly tiresome, and turned up at inconvenient moments. But in such an emergency, neighbors would assist her with the loan of a sheet here and there and a towel or two. If mine had to be returned hastily, I have always found the poor most ready to help each other, especially when it was a case of doing someone who was a little better off. No, I was not surprised that Mrs. Widow graciously bestowed my door key on her friends in search of an afternoon's recreation. But I was just a trifle curious to know how they had got hold of the lilac bedspread, seeing that it was put away in a cupboard that possessed, so I prodded myself, a unique lock, and it had never been used yet, at least not by me. After dinner, I wrestled womanfully with the overpowering desire to go down to the orchard again and do nothing. But a shower seemed threatening, and I decided to answer letters and correct proofs indoors. I told myself that I would put in a full afternoon at really solid work, and should even carry it right on into the night, if need be, without a moment's cessation save for the conventional nourishment, this in order to clear up some of my arrears and to enable me to garden the whole of next day with a perky conscience. How do you kill time on a wet day in the country, people sometimes ask me. It's simple enough. Here's the recipe. Draw up a chair to the table. Get out ink and pens from one of the aged oak cupboards beside the fireplace. Open the dresser drawers and haul out stacks of unanswered queries from magazine readers, the office staff, printers, blockmakers, artists, authors, 
and from people of whom I know nothing. Friends and relatives gave me up long ago. Next, take the heavy lid right off the oak chest. Hinges were broken fifty years ago, so it won't lift up properly. Dive in for armfuls of manuscripts, proofs, photographs, diagrams, sketches. Place same on table. Proceed to hunt among same for some one particular thing I feel I ought to deal with at that particular moment, though it may have lain unhonored and unsung for weeks. Can't find it anywhere. Go through everything again, this time classifying matter slightly by putting it in piles around me on the floor. Still can't find it, but unearth much else that ought to have been attended to long ago, but wasn't. Decide to search upstairs. Turn out trunks, turn out cupboards, turn out drawers. Incidentally discover and meditate upon various things needed mending. Forget what I was looking for. Go on searching for it. Remember presently, and eventually run it to earth in my blotting book downstairs, where, if I had any sense, I should have looked in the first instance. Breathe freely, sit down, rather exhausted, to serious work. A tap at the door. May I come in? Enter visitor number one, and then they follow in quick succession. Finally, Abigail kindly undertakes to tidy up my papers without disturbing a single thing. Next day, if still wet, you repeat from star to star, as they tell us in the crochet patterns. End section 8. Recording by Ed Damereaux.